That's what we need. We need to refresh ourselves with who our God is and what he's done for us. That's what we will be doing in communion, and I hope and trust that as we study the word together, we will lift him up together, our great God. Well, as we begin, question for you, what does a joyful life look like? How do you have a joyful life? If you were to describe a life that's fulfilling, a fulfilled life, a satisfying life, what would you say? The kind of life where you could look around at your circumstances, you lean back in your hammock, and you sigh contentedly and say, I'm happy. Maybe that's never happened to you. I don't know. But uh, how do we get there? How do we get to that point? If we were to go and ask the world outside these doors how they would describe a life of joy and fulfillment, what would they say? I saw a movie recently that pondered the simple but profound question, are you happy. And really, when we think through many movies, many posts on social media, many TV shows, many things our society looks at, they could all be put in this category of the pursuit of happiness. How do I find joy? How do I find fulfillment? We want it, we strive for it, but how do we get there? How can we plan a life that's joyful? What do we have to do? How can we plot our way to this type of life? Well, in that regard, let me introduce you to two young men, and I want you to tell me which of these two young men, as I describe them, think to yourself, which one of these two young men has the most joyful and fulfilling life? The first is an anonymous young man who found himself financially independent at 32 years old, and he posted about it on social media, went a bit viral, and you have to admit, this kind of sounds like the life. Let me describe what he says here. He says from ages 19 to 25, he hustled hard and he saved absolutely everything he could. He threw his money at his house and and soon he was able to pay off his house and pay off his car. Now he says he's 32 and for the last five years, I've been on an hour a day work schedule. One hour a day. He wakes up, I do my daily workload, which is basically just maintenance, and then I just do whatever I want for the rest of the day. Sometimes it's driving two hours for a hike. Sometimes it's binging a Netflix series. Sometimes it's playing a game for six days straight. Sometimes it's deep cleaning my house or doing repairs or yard work. Other times they take my car and drive a few states over to a national park and sleep in the back. I absolutely love it, he says. I never want this to end. And he describes how people question him about his ambition. Doesn't he want to have kids? Doesn't he want to have something more than this? And he says, no, I just like being free. I wake up every day happy, and I barely bring myself to go to bed since I always have so much fun to do. I really wish people would just lay off. Games are fulfilling to me. What exactly is a waste of time anyway? Isn't everything a waste of time, he asks? Isn't working 50 hours a week for 150K a year salary so you can buy a shinier car a waste of time? I see no enjoyment in that. At the end of the day, most of us could just be deleted tomorrow and we wouldn't even be a blip in the overall mechanization of society. This is his life. 32 years old, doesn't have a house payment, car payment, and he works one hour a day. Does that sound good to you? Be able to do whatever you wanted for the rest of the day? Well, let me introduce to you, in contrast to this young man, another young man, and his name is John Chow. He was 26 years old. He had a burning desire to reach the North Sentinel Islands. It's one of the last places on Earth where there's not a lot, barely if any, contact with the outside world. The islanders live all to themselves. 
and they've been that way for many years. This is an island chain off the coast of India. So John prepared for years and years to go to this island, and he did tons of research. He prepared. He worked with an organization. He started by delivering gifts to this tribe, as uh, Jim Elliott and Nate Saint did in Ecuador. Uh, He made his first visit on the actual island, and he was ended up being shot at with bows and arrows from these islanders, and he almost gave up. And in his final journal entry, he pleads with God not to die, since who is going to take his place to reach these people? He asked God to forgive these islanders who had shot at him for God's strength. He admitted his, he was scared and asked God to be close, and the next day he had a fisherman drop him on the island and leave. And later, that fisherman returned to see the islanders carrying John Chow's dead body. He perished there on the island. Now, whose life had more meaning? This 32-year-old who's financially independent or John Chow? 26 years old, not much to show for his life. He was mocked by the media for being a colonialist, for imposing his beliefs on others. And while we may be able to quibble with some of the strategies and methods, we can't deny that his motivation was a biblical one to get the gospel to people who had never heard of it before. Yet his life seems to have counted for nothing. As far as we know, none of the people on this island have professed Christ. So, whereas this other young man, he at least has the money he needs, John Chow has nothing to really show for his sacrifice. So whose life is more meaningful, more joyful, more fulfilling? Well, it depends on how you answer the question, what's the purpose of life? What is the plan? What is the mission we are here for? Because if life is about being comfortable, if this is all there is, if we're soon to be forgotten, if we're going to be deleted from society, as the first guy stated, then his life does seem to be the best there could be. But if life is about more than that, if it's about being on mission, if it's living life solely deo gloria, to the glory of God alone, as John would often write in his journals, then John's life was actually more joyful and more meaningful and counted for the norm. And we know for a fact that his mission will not be in vain. One day, based on Revelation 7-9, every tribe and tongue and people group, including these islanders, will rejoice before God's throne. And the only question is, who's going to reach this tribe and see people in this group come to know the Lord? Who will replace John Chow? Who will live their life for something beyond themselves? and thereby discover true joy, true satisfaction. Because we discover a man worth living for, a man worth dying for. Jesus, the only life plan that includes everlasting joy. So that brings us to Acts chapter 5. Turn there, if you would. We're continuing in the book of Acts. And here in Acts 5, as we conclude this chapter, we're going to encounter some people much like John Chow. We're going to encounter the apostles living their lives on mission. So turn there, Acts chapter 5, look at verse 33, and we'll read down through the end of the chapter, verse 42. Acts 5, 33. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. 
he too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So, in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So, they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day, in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Well, certainly an interesting passage here. This is just an account of some political maneuvering in this time period in a system that we don't understand. What's going on here in these deliberations of this council? This guy, Gamaliel And then, perhaps in one of the most shocking verses in Acts so far, these apostles being beaten and yet rejoicing to be counted worthy. Joy after beating. Now, that doesn't seem like the fulfilled life. Well, let's look at this passage and draw forth from it four different characters, we could call them, or four figures that we see here in this passage. But not only here, we'll also see them in all of church history. You see, God does indeed move in a mysterious way, as the hymn we sang a few weeks ago states. But he also tends to use the same types of characters for his purposes and plans throughout history. And we will find through all of these characters that we're going to study that the path to joy is in the plans of God. Do you want to find a joyful life? It doesn't come through your own planning, your own scheming for financial independence or comfort, but rather through submitting your life to the sovereign plans and purposes of our Savior. Now, one warning, one caveat as we begin. As you could tell, we're going to be talking about a lot of church history. Now, how many of you like history? Oh, hello, friends. You're, you're in my camp. I like history a lot. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand on this one, but you found yourself falling asleep a little bit in history class growing up. Did any of you uh, do that? You, you don't really enjoy it. Well, Fair warning, we will be talking about history, but I hope to be able to make it engaging for you because truly, the life following Jesus is a grand adventure, better even than the most exciting movie we could see. And we will, we will try to keep moving and give you some compelling examples, and I think it's important for us to study church history and see where we came from and how we got to this point. So let's dive in and let's look at the first character that we see in this passage. The first character are the enraged enemies. The enraged enemies. Look back at verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Now, first we should ask, who is they here? Who is the they referring to? Well, if you look back at these verses I have on the screen, starting in verse 17, you'll see who they is. Verse 17 says, The high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles. Then in the second half of verse 21, now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel. Then verse 34, right after this, it says a Pharisee in the council. Now there's a lot of political terms here. There's senate, there's party, there's council, and maybe you're thinking, oh boy, I already didn't like history very much, and now we're going to talk about politics, a double whammy this morning, Uh, but bear with me. It's important to understand the politics of this time period in order to understand who these enemies were, and really they're going to be the enemies throughout the book of Acts. So hopefully this is helpful as we understand who they were opposing these apostles. 
So putting it together, who are the enemies? Well, they are the council, or as it is called, the Sanhedrin. It's also called the Senate. This comes originally from the book of Exodus, where Moses appoints 70 elders to help him make decisions, plus himself, so a 71-person council or a congress to help make decisions uh, for the people of Israel. Now, they weren't formalized until the time period between the Old and New Testaments, but ever since then, as they fought against first the Greeks for independence and then now under Rome, this group has become more and more political, especially the priests who were there to serve God but had become more consumed with temporal things at this time period. So there were two main groups on the council at this time. First are the Sadducees, and you might remember from our message last week who they were. Uh, I like to think of them as the left hand of the council. Now, comparing it to the left and right politically or theologically today, it's not precise, and they don't fit into those categories precisely, but it is helpful to think about it through that way as two parties, much like our two-party system here in America. So this left side of the council, the Sadducees, they were supposed to be the religious authorities, but they acted more out of political interests. They were in line with Rome, and and thus they held more of the power. The high priest was part of this group, likely Caiaphas at this time, the same high priest who put Jesus on trial. But also, we see earlier in uh, the book of Acts, there's reference to Annas, who was Caiaphas's father-in-law, Uh, who was the former high priest and often pulled the strings behind the scenes in this time period. Now, this group, the Sadducees, they were the majority party on this council. The minority party were the Pharisees. Have you ever heard of the Pharisees? Does that ring a bell to you? We see them a lot in the Gospels, and what are they doing? They, They oppose Jesus. They're often the ones calling for these rules. They're often associated with being legalistic. But interestingly, by the time we get here into the book of Acts, we're actually going to find them more favorable toward Christianity than the Sadducees. We'll see Gamaliel here stick up for the Christians. We're going to see Paul, who is converted, a Pharisee who is converted. And they were the the right-hand side of the council, more concerned with keeping the religious laws and traditions than with the politics. And they were more popular with the common people. So most of the time, the council sided with the Pharisees, which is what we will see in this chapter. Now, we're going to see these a lot in Acts, so hopefully this clears up in your mind who these people are. Now, why were they so enraged? This word here has the idea of being split apart. This is legit mad. These guys are angry. And so mad, in fact, they says they, want, they wanted to kill the apostles. Now, we know from Jesus's account of standing before this council that they actually didn't have the power, according to law, to execute anyone. The Sanhedrin didn't have the power. It was only Rome who had the power. That's why Jesus was taken to Pilate. But in some instances, they could, under Rome's nose, carry out an execution. They could blame the mob. They, get, they got really angry. They got really out of hand, and they took care of this, this person if it was somebody who wasn't as well known. And so that's probably what they're attempting to do here, and they will be successful in it several chapters later in the killing of Stephen, the first martyr. So this threat of death is real. These guys are angry because it says they heard this. And what's this? Well, Peter, remember in the previous verses, just told them that the God they worship, the God of their fathers, raised Jesus from the dead. And by the way, you were the ones who had him killed. And that did not go over very well. And Peter does this in almost every speech in the book of Acts so far. He lays the blame for the death of Jesus at the feet of this council, and they don't like it at all. And we know also from verse 17 that they were jealous of the apostles. They had popularity. They were doing miracles. 
And remember, they're operating politically, and politicians don't take kindly when someone is gaining more influence and more popularity than themselves. So, putting it together, this is a powerful group. They want to kill the apostles. They were enraged. And we see this character appear a lot throughout church history. Christianity has always had its enraged enemies. We know initially in church history, the Roman powers are kind of okay with Christianity. In the book of Acts, we don't see them go against Christianity too much. They see it as just another sect of the Jews. But fairly soon after this book is concluded in the AD 60s, Emperor Nero will turn against the Christians, and, and the persecution will ramp up, so much so that all the original apostles will be martyred. These guys we're talking about here, Paul and Peter by Nero himself, except for the apostle John, who they try to kill anyway, and somehow he survives and ends up dying of old age. Now, even after Christianity gains acceptance in the Roman Empire, there's still enemies after them. The rising Islamic invaders of that time period, the barbarian hordes who conquer Rome centuries later, the church itself eventually goes astray from biblical beliefs into false traditions, and they stamp out anyone who tries to call Christians to read the word and trust in Jesus alone. And friends, sadly, today there are still enemies of Christianity. I mean, think about what we've just seen in our own lifetimes. These communist countries cracking down on Christians in the USSR previously and in China. And in China, it was so bad, they cracked down on Christians uh, many decades ago that it was estimated that Christianity had been wiped out in China, that the communist powers had gotten rid of them completely. More recently, we know ISIS, other terrorist organizations have captured and killed believers all over. There's always enraged enemies out there against Christianity. Now, here in America, we may not have these violent enemies, and we should thank God for that, but we should recognize that many Christians around the world on a daily basis face these enraged enemies. I've read several recent books by uh, resources like Voice of the Martyrs, Open Doors, uh, Tim Kazee, and his Dispatches from the Front, both book and the films. And as you go through these resources, your heart is stirred with, with compassion and sorrow as these believers are persecuted and some killed, but then also a little bit of anger and rage. How could God allow this? How could my Christian brothers and sisters be persecuted? How could this injustice prevail all over the world? I think it's good to study these accounts and, and to have those feelings and then translate them into prayer. Do you pray for the persecuted church facing these enraged enemies? Do you even give them a thought? Do you even think about that today, as we sit here in this room, there are believers trying to gather all over the world with fear and anxiety that the government will crack down on them? Do we give them a thought? Well, how do Christians respond to these enraged enemies? They seem so strong, both here in Acts 5, all throughout history, and perhaps you, in watching the news, you view things online, you see the persecution of Christians, you see the pressure of our own worsening society, you read these accounts of martyrdom, and you think, what are we going to do? What can we do? How can we stop this? How can we bring justice? How can we save our country from going down this path? Well, let's keep going and see the response of the believers, and let's put ourselves in their shoes. These apostles here are being threatened with death. And what would happen if the council did indeed put them to death? Would it be the end of Christianity? The apostles wiped out. We only got five chapters into Acts, and already the church's very existence is being threatened. No, 
God works in a mysterious way and brings out in this account another character that changes the imminent doom of these apostles. That brings us to number two, an unlikely ally. Glance back at verses 34 and 39, and you'll see a guy arise by the name of Gamaliel. Who was this guy? He was a very famous Jewish rabbi of this time period, even to today, the grandson of the famed Hillel who founded a major school. Uh, in fact, he was so well known for, for, uh, for his teaching that it was said when he died, one Jewish scholar, that the glory of the law ceased. He was an unusual, unlikely ally to the believers. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was a strict keeper of the law, someone who would have gotten very angry if someone claimed to be God. In fact, perhaps he was even on the council when the Sanhedrin arrested Jesus and condemned him to death. Perhaps Gamaliel was even part of that and cast his vote against Jesus. So an unlikely ally of the apostles. What does he say in support of the Christians? Well, he tells them to put the apostles out so he can speak frankly to the council. And he calls for caution. Take care what you are going to do with these guys. And then he gives a short little history lesson. And he brings up two guys, Thutis and Judas. Uh, likely both of these are false messiahs, people who claim to be the messiah. They're going to rise up and conquer Rome, and they amount to nothing. Josephus, a historian, makes reference uh, to, to this, uh, some of these figures. In fact, Josephus says that many false messiahs rose up in this time period to try to overthrow the Romans. And we see Jesus present a very different way of dealing with them and calling for heart change and calling, actually leading to his very death at the hands of the Roman officials and then his resurrection. But Gamaliel's point in bringing up these two guys is to show that if something is fake, it will not last. It will amount to nothing. But if it is of God, good luck opposing it. No matter what you do, he says, you can't overthrow it. So bring it on. It'll do no good to oppose what God is doing. And the Sanhedrin would not want to be found opposing God, would they? So his advice, let these guys do what they want, and if they're nothing, they will fade away. Step out of the way. Let the enemy take care of itself. Really, actually, pretty good advice from a worldly perspective. Uh, step away and see what happens to these guys. And his advice was followed. Now, it almost makes it sound like Gamaliel was a believer. In some ways, he seems to support Christianity. Well, maybe, and there's some church tradition that perhaps he was the secret agent of the apostles on the council, but I think that's a bit of a legend. Uh, I think he was merely a shrewd politician or perhaps just genuinely curious about this new movement, but the fact remains he was an unlikely ally that God used to preserve and stand up for the church in this very crucial time period. And that's the sort of figure God often uses we read in the book of Daniel many different unlikely allies that God uses. These different emperors of various empires who help end up helping, sometimes unwittingly, the believers in God. All in all, we see throughout history, both in the Old Testament, New Testament, and then in church history, that empires may rise, they may fall, and God uses them all. There is no one he cannot use for his purposes. So let's consider just a few examples here in church history. The first one is Emperor Constantine, hundreds of years later. Persecution ramps up, but then this general claims to see the sign of Christ in the sky and claims to convert to Christianity. He eliminates persecution, he allows Christianity to become legal, and he even helps form a church council to clarify theology. 
Now, was Constantine a genuine believer? There's some debate if he was just doing this for the power and influence or if he was genuine. We're not sure. But we know that God used him in a powerful and interesting way to give relief to the Christians for a time from persecution. Then we move many centuries later to a guy known as Henry VIII. Ever heard of him? If you weren't falling asleep in history class at this time period, it should sound fairly familiar to you. Uh, He was the king of England. Uh, He was a very unlikely ally, the time of the Reformation, and he wanted to divorce his wife. He found another woman that he loved, and the Pope would not allow him to do it. So on his own personal wishes and whims, he pulled his whole country, England, out of the church of that time and into Protestantism. Now, was he a believer? Was he doing this for good motives? Didn't certainly seem to be the case, but did he not make this decision Perhaps our church, perhaps even our country, would not exist to this day. This man who was after his own wishes ended up being used by God in a very powerful way. And we see this all throughout, even up till recently, as we look at all those who were involved in the decision to overturn abortion nationwide. All the different figures, all the politicians, all the journalists, some good, some not so good, some who believed, some who didn't, and yet God used all of them to accomplish his purposes. He moves in mysterious ways. He uses these unlikely people. And it's the same in our lives. This should be a comfort to us. The most unlikely circumstance in your life, the most ridiculous moment, the worst day you could possibly have, all of these are in God's hands. And he can use them to do something incredible in your life. If he can use figures like these that we've seen, he can use whatever may come to pass in your life for his purposes. He can transform anything. And we see this all throughout the Bible. He can take what is a desert and make it into a garden. In the book of Joel, it says he can take what the locusts have eaten and transform it into renewal. In Psalm 90, it says that he can take all the days that we have seen evil and give us as many days of joy. In Genesis, it says that what people mean for evil, he can turn for good. As the hymn writer says, the clouds we dread may actually be filled with mercy that will fall upon us. But if we get so bogged down in the here and now and all that's going on in our lives, we don't see how God is working to take things, the most unlikely things, even the worst things, and using them in our lives for his purposes, for our good and for his glory. That brings us to character number three, ourselves, the joyful Jesus followers. The joyful Jesus followers. Look at verse 40 again, and we'll see what happens after Gamaliel speaks up. For these believers. Well, they're not going to be killed. Instead, four things happen to them. Four things. First of all, they're beaten. It's likely 39 lashes, minus one, not to go over what the law prescribes. This is not a walk in the park. This is uh, similar to what Jesus would have experienced himself. They're beaten. Then they're threatened. Don't talk about this name, this Jesus, anymore. No more talk about that. But What we find is that we Christians are a bit like a child. Have you ever told your child not to say a certain word or a certain thing? Whatever you do, do not say that. And what do they do? They want to say that word, and they keep saying it. Well, that's how Christians are. When the government authorities tell us, don't talk about Jesus, we want to talk about him all the more. We just can't help it. That's who we are. That's our mission. And that's what happens to these apostles. They actually, it says, rejoice is the third thing. 
Look at verse 41 again. This is a radical verse if ever there was one. It says that they were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. It gets more and more radical as you read each word. First, they're rejoicing after being beaten. It's not something I think you and I would be super joyful about. But it says they were rejoicing at being counted worthy to be beaten and threatened like this. Now, we think we're worthy of many things. Worthy of fame, worthy of recognition, worthy of money. But we certainly wouldn't say we're worthy of persecution. But then there's more. It says they rejoiced at being counted worthy to suffer dishonor. Now, in an honor-shame culture like this, this would be a big deal. To suffer shame, to suffer public uh, ridicule, that would have been a very big deal. Well, they say they're happy, they're joyful to be embarrassed for Jesus, to experience shame. Are you? Are you glad? Are you rejoicing when Jesus embarrasses you in front of your coworkers at your school, among your unsaved family members or connections? Or do you only bring up Jesus, kind of like he's the, the awkward relative who you know, oh, they're going to bring up something just awkward and, and we don't want to hang around them very much because uh, they're just so embarrassing. Is that how we treat Jesus and his message? Or are we glad to be embarrassed, to suffer shame, whatever that may look like, for his name? And then thir- uh, fourthly, they rejoice after being beaten and threatened and then they keep going with their church life. Notice verse 42, a verse that's equally radical. It says they gathered in two places. First of all, in the temple. This is in the very shadow of this council and these rulers. This was their domain, and yet they transform it into a place where they gather to worship. In fact, it's interesting that the temple itself, representing the Old Testament, ended up kind of becoming the first church building of the New Testament church. It's likely because it was the one place where they could all gather. Remember, thousands have gotten saved at this point, and they're probably gathering together on Solomon's porch, as uh, Ron mentioned last week. And it it probably also involves evangelism to uh, the crowd. In fact, the word used where it says that they proclaimed at the very end of this verse, that's the word for evangelizing, sharing the gospel. But not just in the temple, also house to house. They broke into smaller groups and went around and met together that way. For what? Well, likely for what chapter 2, verse 42 tells us, all those healthy church aspects, prayer, studying the teaching of the apostles, uh, perhaps communion. In fact, these apostles, the apostles, probably, they probably went around to these different small groups, small churches, and taught the doctrine, fulfilling Jesus' great commission. They also preached the gospel, even to the believers. And notice that they did this every day. They didn't give excuses. For them, church was more than just a Sunday thing. It was an all-day, every-day sort of thing. They knew they needed to remain faithful in persecution, and so they gathered in these groups to encourage one another, to study the Word, to sing, to rejoice in who Jesus was. Now, do we place that same value on church life as they did? We have far fewer excuses than they did for neglecting gathering together, hearing teaching, gathering in big groups, gathering in small groups, Are we content just to gather in one big city and go our merry way? Or are we getting involved in each other's lives, whether through a Sunday class, a community group as they restart in the fall, or even just an informal Bible study with friends in this church? If they could gather in both big and small groups in a time of persecution, are we doing so in these good times, these times of relative prosperity? Or do we see it as just an optional add-on to our lives? Nothing urgent, nothing crucial. How is your church life going in comparison to what we see modeled here in the book of Acts? Well, where do we see this 
these joyful Jesus followers throughout church history. I want to introduce you to two ladies, Perpetua and Felicitas. Perpetua was an early Christian. She was from North Africa. She was a noble woman. She had just given birth to a child and converted to Christianity. And as she and other new believers were gathering together in a small group to learn more about Christian doctrine, it was kind of like a, a baptism class or a Sunday class, they were gathered together and they were arrested by the authorities. Another person arrested was her slave, Felicitas, a second woman, and she was pregnant. Now, during their imprisonment, Perpetua's father came to her and urged her, just give up Christianity and you can be free. And Perpetua said, I can't. It is who I am. I am a Christian. And she did not recant her faith. The church deacons were tasked with trying to help care for this new mom. They had to smuggle her newborn baby in so she could feed the baby. And then the believers were praying hard for Felicitas to give birth before she was killed. And and God answered their prayer and she was able to deliver her baby. But soon, on the emperor's birthday, both women and others, Christians, were taken to the arena to be attacked by wild beasts. And you can see a picture of that here from the museum and gallery. I love this picture of these two women in the midst of all these animals swarming them, attacking this violence, this chaos. And yet there's peace. There's calmness. There's confidence. And that's how uh, Perpetua is described. In fact, it's even said that the wild beast didn't do the trick, so an executor was called in, and Perpetua had to even help calm the executor down so that he could end up killing her. And both women ended up dying for their faith. They had confidence. They had joy in persecution. And that's how the early church in these centuries was. In fact, it's very interesting to compare the rise and the spread of Christianity in these first centuries to the rise and spreading of other worldviews. Take Islam, for instance. In about the same amount of time, Islam and Christianity spread about the same distance across North Africa, into Europe, both of them, and then eventually both went out towards Asia. They, they spread, in about 300 years each, they spread the same distance as far as developing followers. But Islam and other religions as well, they spread by persecuting people, by conquering lands, they spread by politics and the sword, whereas Christianity spread in spite of of persecution. In spite of the government being opposed to them, Christianity spread this distance. Tertullian, an early church father, said very famously, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And that's what we see. No matter what the Roman powers did against Christianity, they couldn't stamp it out. It just kept kept spreading even more and more and more. In fact, If you were to be giving advice to a dictator on how to wipe out Christianity, which I hope none of us would ever be in that circumstance, but if you were, the very worst advice you could give someone is to persecute uh, Christianity because that tends in church history to make Christianity spread all the more. There's There's a sense of godly cockiness almost in the church, not in ourselves, but in our God, because we know we will not be defeated. You can bring on your worst, nations and rulers, But God will not let the church be destroyed. We see such boldness continue today in places like China. Remember how it was said that they had wiped out Christianity? No more Christians in China. Well, now it is projected to be the country with the largest amount of Christians. Apparently, they did not do a very good job wiping it out. In fact, very interestingly, I saw an article about how they're building a church in Chairman Mao's very hometown these days. Talk about God moving in a mysterious way. Other countries, maybe the last countries on earth we would think would have Christians, like the country of Iran, they're seeing incredible growth of the church there. 
Places where ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and the Taliban, they're thriving, the church too is thriving. Let's go back a few centuries and talk about a man, Martin Luther. You heard of him? We've talked about him before. He stood against the false teaching that had crept into the church in his time. He brought the church back toward the gospel, salvation and Christ alone, by faith alone, to grace alone, to the glory of God alone. But before Luther, there was a man by the name of Jan Hus. He was in uh, the Czech Republic, what's now the Czech Republic, and he was executed, he was burned at the stake for believing similar things to what Luther would later believe. When he was chained to the stake, he said, much like these believers in Acts 5, my Lord Jesus Christ was bound with a harder chain than this one for my sake, so why should I be ashamed of this rusty chain? He was not ashamed to suffer for Jesus. And at his death, he made a bold prediction. He said, you may roast the goose, and that was a play on his name, Hoose means goose. You may roast this goose, but a hundred years from now, a swan will arise whose singing you will not be able to silence. And very interestingly, 102 years later, Luther arises and the Reformation begins. And the church of that time, gone astray, they were not able to defeat this movement. And it continues to this day. And we here sit as the successors of what began in that time period. Despite persecution, inquisitions, excommunication, this movement was not silenced. The swan was not silenced, in spite of the persecution. It's an incredible story of how God works. He works through bold and joyful believers. So, we see the apostles, we see these examples in church history. The question is, are you a joyful person like they are? If not, the question becomes, do you make a stand like they do? And if not, do you, do you value Jesus like they valued him? Do you value the church fellowship like they did? Well, we have one final character. A character that has, in a sense, been in the background this whole time. And that is our sovereign Savior. Look at verse 38. Gamaliel says, very interestingly, if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. Now, that word for plan is the same word we talked about in Acts 4 in their prayer, where they talked about how God had a plan in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, also used in Acts 2 when Peter mentioned the same thing. It reminds us that God always has a plan. Remember, we talked about saying that when something happens in your life, everything is going according to plan. It's just not my plan. It's God's plan. All moves according to plan with God. Now, in movies or in books, you often hear the villains say, everything is going according to plan. But inevitably, it doesn't. And they, yet they keep saying this, even when it doesn't go according to the, their plan. Yet when God says that, it is truth. His plans do not go awry. His plans are not thwarted. He is the grand author, writing an incredible story. And we've just seen a small part of that in church history. He writes our stories. Now, if you've ever tried to write a story, you realize how hard it is to write a story that makes sense, that doesn't have any plot holes, things that don't make any sense, that has all the subplots brought together in a wonderful resolution. Well, God does not have that problem. God does not create plot holes. He doesn't forget certain things. He forgets no theme. He redeems all of history for his purposes. Proverbs 69 says, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. We plan, God works. 
all throughout Acts and beyond, God never stops building his church right to the present day. Thus, our theme verse for the morning. I hope you had a chance to look at it. This is Jesus, Matthew 16, 18. He promised, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This wasn't an empty promise. He made this promise, and he fulfilled it. He used people like Amelia, like King Henry VIII, even dictators to this very day, to accomplish his purposes of building his church. No one stops him. Now, the full name of this book is traditionally the Acts of the Apostles. But I actually think a better name, and, and many have pointed this out, is it should be the Acts of Jesus, or perhaps the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because God is the main character in this book. God is the main character in all the books of the Bible, actually. He's the grand mover. He's the main character. The apostles, they do their duty. The Christians proclaim. But God is the one working behind the scenes to build his church and to exalt his name. So, what about us? How can we model ourselves after the character of the joyful apostles and these other Christian martyrs and heroes throughout history, resting in God's sovereign plan and care? Well, I think the key is to be people who rejoice. And you might say, I don't have anything to rejoice about. What do I have to be joyful about in my circumstance? Well, for all of us, there are at least four things we can be joyful about this morning. First, we can rejoice in God's work. God is at work in your life, each and every one of us. As one theologian puts it, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. God is always doing something in your life. Even in the most ridiculous, crazy, unlikely circumstances, he is working. How do we encourage ourselves in this crazy world when we see the news and we feel like everything is out of control we remember that God is still in control. And practically, it may help to read biographies or accounts of some of these people in church history and find that in the midst of the darkest times, God often brought incredible revival and built his church. So if you're discouraged at the state of our country, the state of our world, read these stories, see God moving, and, and then look in your own life to see how he's moving and take heart. Take a big picture view. God never gives up all moves according to his plan. So rejoice in God's work, and then rejoice in God's people. Rejoice in your Christian community here at this church and then around the world and really all throughout history. We're blessed to be one church, one universal church, and we all suffer together. We are, as ISIS rightly accused us, the people of the cross. That's who we are. And remember how the deacons reached out in Perpetua story and her small group played a role and we see the church all throughout history bounds together in tough times. So let's keep doing that. Let's not be nominal. Let's go deeper with each other. Let's go into our small groups. Let's start Bible studies. These things can be prep classes for persecution. They should be highly prized. One day when persecution may come to us, we may not be able to gather in this setting, all of us together. So we may have to gather at homes in smaller groups. So are we preparing for that? Are we preparing our children for that by fostering those connections between families and friendships even now? Many things will not last. Our hobbies, our sports, our, our vacations, but ultimately we know the church will continue to be built and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Thirdly, rejoice through prayer. 
It's a constant theme in Acts. We talked about it in Acts 4. In fact, in one sense, we could describe this passage here as the answer to prayer of what we looked at, the believers praying in Acts 4. Because the apostles were given boldness to proclaim the gospel in spite of persecution, God looked on their persecution and enabled them to be preserved and to escape. And we see an incredible story of God answering prayers in an amazing way. So have you been praying? Have you spent more time praying this summer? Have you perhaps used our prayer cross and put something up there or prayed with someone there? Just a reminder, it's still there, still in that connector. Stop by, pray, put your requests there. Praise God for who he is, his answers to prayer also, and make your requests known to him and to others. But we have another step to take as we challenge us as a church to pray. In years gone by, we have done on a a couple of occasions a 40-day of prayer guide. And we've supplied those at different crucial time periods of our church. We thought it'd be good to do that again this summer. Now, instead of using printed guides as we've done in the past, we're going to do this electronically. So we're going to be posting on our social media on a daily basis because it's quite easy to scroll through your social media and just get discouraged. So we want to provide a little bit of hope and a little bit of direction on your uh, social media account. So we'll be posting it there also in our weekly email newsletter. Let us know if you'd like to be a part of that. But we'll give you uh, in the newsletter uh, the whole week's worth of prayers and then daily on social media. And we will start it this Tuesday. That's when the email will go out with the first ones and also the first post on social media. That will take us right about to the time or there in the time when Pastor Andrew will be returning and we will be beginning our fall activity. So what better way to prepare for what God has for this church this fall than to spend 40 days each day, all of us, praying for the same things. We'll include things like our church and our needs here, and certainly Pastor Andrew will include things like the persecuted believers and other uh, things that we should be praying for. This may not seem like much, just praying together once a day, but we're so prone to neglect it in favor of spending more time on things like social media. So let's redeem it and use it and spend the next 40 days starting this Tuesday in prayer. And that can lead to great rejoicing as we see God work. And then finally, fourthly, let's rejoice in the gospel. If all else fails, guess what? You are still saved. If you put your faith and trust in Christ, you are God's child. And all else may fall apart, but that is who you are. That is your identity. We have reason to rejoice if in nothing else than in the fact that Jesus died for us sinners, though we are. And we rejoice in that by doing something called communion or the Lord's Supper, which we will do here in just a moment. We will reflect on what he's done for us. We will be one body, unified, remembering his death and resurrection. Despite whatever the enraged enemies are trying to do, that is what we are unified on. So as we conclude, let's think back. Whose life was more valuable? John Chow or that financially independent 30-something? I think it's the one who gave himself for a cause beyond himself, a cause that the gates of hell will not prevail against. I have one more young man to introduce you to, William Borden. He lived a hundred years or so ago. He had money. He had a successful future. But he gave it all up to go to the Middle East to do missions work. But at just the age of 25, he contracted spinal meningitis, and he died before even beginning his missions works. He was still in language study in Egypt. Was his life useless? Was it like John Chow, purposeless? There didn't seem to be anything to come for it? His parents in his Bible discovered three phrases that defined his life that he had written. And you may have heard of these before. 
He said there was no reserve. There was no retreat. And there was no regret. That's a joyful, fulfilling life. A life with no regrets. A life given for the cause of boldly rejoicing in the gospel and proclaiming it to people who need to hear it. Some would say that the time we are living in is a terrible time to be alive. Perhaps you've thought that. That it's going to be hard on the next generation because of technology, because of immorality, because of perhaps future persecution. And in some sense, I see that as true. The world is a dark place. But that's a glass half empty sort of perspective. Because so long as God is sovereign, it is always a great time to be alive. God has not lost control. And we can see our enemies as our opposition and panic and be afraid. Or we can see them as opportunities to shine even brighter in a darker world. And a study through church history shows us that it's always been hard for believers to stand for what's right. It gives us perspective, whether it was the persecution of someone like Jan Hus, or in those hundreds of years of dark times, or terrorists killing Christians today, or those who stood up for the personhood of the slave 100, 200 years ago, or those standing up for the personhood of the unborn today. The Christian life has always been an unpopular and hard one. But boy, is it an excellent, awesome, incredible adventure. And by God's grace, it can be one of great joy in spite of the great opposition. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the Christian life is a joyful one, no matter what may come? Do you believe it for your kids and for your grandkids, the next generation? And are you willing to take risks for that joy, to share it with others, as we've seen these folks do? Or are you content to sit back and let others take the cause? Have you made a personal decision, as we'll sing in a moment, to follow Jesus? No turning back, no retreats, no reserves, no regret. It is only that path of following Jesus that leads to joy.